spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah Subhanahu wa along that journey. Listening to Sheikh Amin Qawadiyah's voice takes me back to high school when I used to attend his Sunday tafsir classes. His classes were not just for the average person. Sometimes guests included other scholars like Dr. Omar Farak Abdullah, who would ask very deep questions and in that space became students as well. Sheikh Amin, with his dry British humor, is known as a hidden gem of Chicago. He studied all across India and Pakistan for just under a decade, including at the original Dar al-Ulum in Deoband, India, where his father had also studied. Sheikh Amin's journey includes growing up in the household of a scholar, leaving home at 16 to do his, studying the Sufi Tariqa, training as a Mufti in Islamic law, and eventually founding Dar al-Qasim, an institute that helps students gain Islamic knowledge that is authentic and relevant for Muslims in the West. Today, Dar al-Qasim has over 40 students, 12 faculty, and an amazing new space, complete with an extensive library. Please listen to the visionary behind this beautiful institution. My father was the Imam of the community, Muslim community in Gloucester, England, which is near Bristol, very close to Wales. So since he was the the Imam, you know, his duties included obviously going for prayer and teaching, conducting the Jum'ah, conducting Nikah and other rituals like Janazah, funeral ceremonies and just being a spiritual guide and mentor for the community. The community was made up of immigrants who came primarily from Western India, Gujarat, and then the, the, from the working class. We do we did have a few professionals also, but he was their guide and mentor. They all respected him, honored him tremendously uh, because of his very soft and kind nature. People were drawn to him naturally and everybody who went and studied with him as a child remembered him for throughout their lives. So that was very, I think, inspirational for me to see that someone who has this nature and disposition uh, became a almost like a, a father figure for everybody. So during that time uh, he was very uh, kind of soft with me in the sense that he didn't enforce anything enforce anything on me and saying that you have to be an imam or you have to be a scholar. He basically said that uh, you must do whatever you want to do but you must do it well. 
that was his motto for everybody. <clears throat> All my brothers and sisters, he said the same thing. That uh, this is so. Yeah, as it kind of turned out, what happened was that uh, scholars from India and Pakistan, great scholars who were great orators and um, monumental figures in the Muslim world, they would come to England. And when they came to our town, our city, they would obviously uh, stop by my father's house because of the connection he had with those people from India, because they, they came primarily from the Deobandi school. And these were monumental figures from the Deobandi school, and my father would on occasions host some of them, great luminaries, okay, such as Khari uh, Tayyab, who was the director of Darun Deoband in India, where he studied, and eventually I studied there too. And uh, you know, he was a, quite an amazing person, personality. I understood nothing what he said. I was a young boy. <laughs> but it was just the awe that he kind of carried around with him, and how people took to him. And, I was just mesmerized by the honor they gave him as a great scholar of Islam and so on. And there were other scholars like him who came and they discussed Islam. And uh, you know, they, they really inspired me in the sense that uh, these people can talk about Islam at this level, which even, as I said, I didn't understand 99% of it. But it was just the feeling that people, when they come from these Muslim countries, they pay respect to my father. So that was the biggest thing. I think that eventually inspired me to do what I did. Yeah. You left home to do your hips when you were 16 and then began studying soon after. When did Islam become important in your life and how did you decide you wanted to pursue studying? I think it was very organic. I don't think there was one single event that sparked me into action. It was just a there are a number of components. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Being in school, in the grammar school, uh, being the only Muslim in the school, obviously I was faced with a little bit of confrontation, uh, a little bit of racism, and uh, a little bit of kind of you know aggro now and then. <laughs> right, but uh, you know d during those times and days, I, I found out through reading. Uh, from books in the library that Islam was a major civilization of the world and in the world and you know, it represented a system of government and uh, leadership which uh, you know the human history has yet to see so this was in their books in the library the reference books and that got me thinking so, okay then I must one day learn about Islam somewhere somehow but that, that was very early on when I was maybe 12 years old and so on. And a number of events happened. and it's just Mostly the, these people who came from abroad and they spoke and then eventually I started to understand a few things they were saying. And I said, okay, this is great. And then obviously there was a kind of I say a natural resentment uh, towards the, the culture, the British culture and things didn't chime in my mind. I said, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? And it's just kind of it's, superficial culture it had no depth in it and I would see the way we behaved in the house of hospitality and 
taking care of each other and so on, which was non-existent in the British culture. In the British culture, once you were 16 or 18, you left the house and then you probably never spoke to your parents for a while. <laughs> right? So I said, that, that doesn't sound like a good culture. <laughs> so that got me thinking, said, do I really want to be here? Uh, you know, grow up with all these you know, nasty ideas in my mind. And taking care of the parents was obviously big on my mind as the eldest son, but at the same time, I felt that I still had enough time where they were healthy and young enough to take care of themselves. And I decided I should go permanently and uh, move permanently to India or wherever and start my full-time studies. I was already doing a little bit of hivs, one or two suras here and there. But then we decided to specify, but just went full time and finished. So that's when I decided to leave. Yeah. Why did you decide to study at Darul Ulum in Deoband? Was that always the goal because your father studied there? No, Deoband was never on the agenda. Uh, I initially wanted to go to Medina, but my father somehow talked me out of it. It was a good thing. Medina University, not Medina the city, obviously. I was, I didn't know too much then. He said, no, if you really want to do hills, then India is the place where you should do it. Okay, fine. Yeah, so going to India was a natural thing for my father because we have family there in the Gujarat and my grandfather was there, my aunts, uncles were there, so it would be kind of more comforting to be in the midst of family members while you were doing hills away from home because, you know, you're almost now a foreign land. So then to take away the um, the strangeness of the foreign land being with the family members um, supposedly would have helped. Um, so that's why we went to India. And uh, even when I went to India, I, I didn't want to study in the place I ended up studying. But then everybody told me out of that too. Can you talk a bit about the places that you studied and the teachers that had the greatest impact on you? Yeah, when I started my hills in Gujarat, a place called Taraj, which is very close to my father's hometown, about four miles in the fields, yeah, and you had to walk through the fields to get there. Uh, there were roads there, but they were kind of long-winded roads. And it was much easier to take the shortcut. The shortcut was about a three-mile hike. Um, so you have to walk there to the, to the uh, madrasa. And I did my hips there, relatively short time, a year. And then from there, I, I kind of decided to go to Bangalore, southern India, where I met a few students from that madrasa in one of my travels to Delhi, Nizamuddin, the Tablighi Markaz. So I saw those students and I saw that they will probably have a better <coughs> impact <coughs> on my studies than staying in the Gujarat. So I, I decided to go there and to Bangalore. Uh, the name of the madrasa is Sabil Rashad. It's a wonderful place. It was initiated by a very pious, humble man, Maulana Abu Saud, a wonderful human being and a great ascetic. He would <coughs> offer you know, nothing salat throughout the day and every day in his nafil he, he would recite three paras, three juz in his nafil. Yeah. 
He's an amazing man, amazing person, very dedicated, very honorable, and he has wonderful sons who are now also alims and they were teachers in the school. And yeah, then I met there in the, that madrasa in Bangalore. I think the person who has uh, in, undoubtedly influenced me the most, and he is Sheikh Muhammad Miran. He's from southern India, from Tamil Nadu. He also went to Deoband to finish his studies. He came back, started teaching at this madrasa, Sabir Rashad. He, he, he was a genius. He knew and understood everything about the soul, Sufism. So he's the one who introduced me to Ibn Arabi, to Ghazali, to Shaolillah, and all the other greats of the Ummah. And he was just a wonderful person. He wrote for us a book on surf, etymology, and morphology. Since we didn't know Urdu that well, see, he just took it upon himself to teach us how to study the Arabic language, grammar, and so on. So he definitely influenced me. As I matured and I started reading Arabic, and he put me onto a course just to read some of the people that he read, and you know, I became very attached to him, and you know that is where the journey of uh, you know, spirituality started with this man. He was young, but he was a genius. He had a brilliant mind, and I've never seen anyone more positive in thinking than him. He was just such a positive thinker that he never allowed anyone to think negative about anything. Then I found out that is the order of all Sufis. Sufis don't allow people to think negative about anything. They all see the bright side of life. And that's how we were kind of inducted <laughs> into the order. But uh, we, we had quite a few conversations, fascinating lessons, and he trained me in that field from a very young age. I was barely 18 when I started that journey. After that, I, I decided to move on because the, the curriculum wasn't as fast-paced as I liked it. Coming from England, going to school in England, I was used to a load that perhaps those people, students who were a bit younger than me, they weren't used to the load of studies and I wanted a bigger load, a better load. And I decided to test my you know, abilities elsewhere, I decided to go to Pakistan for one year. Stayed there, I met some very wonderful scholars, Mufti Rilal Haq, who was a teacher of great influence. He taught me tafsir. He is now the, uh, the great Mufti of South Africa. He's old now, mashallah. But he was young in those days, and he had a tremendous impact on my academic side where he introduced me to certain academic principles and the idea of reading and just reading and studying. And then in one of his lectures, after a series of thoughts and comments, he said that if you want to really benefit from the tradition of Shah Allah, perhaps one of the greatest scholars of India all time, is that he must go and sit in the company of this person who is in Durban, Qari Tayyib. Allah have mercy on him. 
Gwaiyagoyab was one of the great scholars who would frequent England and come to my house to visit my dad, and he was hosted by my hometown a couple of times. So I said, okay. I didn't know he was that great. <laughs> I had the luxury of obviously having a British passport, so I could go back and forth into India, Pakistan without a visa in those days. It was quite simple. So I decided, okay, that if, if this is the living uh, tradition of Shah Waliullah and this person, I'd better go and sit with him for a couple of years. He was not teaching, he was the rector, the principal. He wouldn't teach, but he, he would hold you know, gatherings and audience whenever he was there in Dilban, Naftasar. And you can go and sit with him and ask questions and benefit from his presence and insights and so on. So that's what I did. I, I packed my bags again and went to Dilban, back to India. <laughs> in Dilban, I met a few wonderful scholars who really influenced me, my academics. They're wonderful people. And uh, one of them is still alive here today, mashallah. Said Palamburi is a Mufti, he taught us Mishkat. There was another great man who really uh, developed my uh, enthusiasm for legal theory in Islam, Mal Miraj, who taught us the famous work of Hidayah, the book of Hanafi law. He was mesmerizing in his ability to understand the book without looking at it. He would never read the book. He would just give a lecture and say, now, uh, you guys can read the book. I'm not reading it. And he was like, kind of very uh, authoritative in his ability to understand the principles of jurisprudence and then just deliver them while he's sitting there making a ban. Uh, it would take him half an hour to make one ban. And then eventually when he, he realized he had to eat it too, five minutes before the class ended, he would eat the ban. <laughs> But he was mesmerizing, and his his legal theory is just enormous academic ability. Yes. And then obviously Khari Khari so I sit with him in his gatherings, in his audience, and benefit from his knowledge, his wisdom, his insights, the way he thought, and the way he thought was the way his grandfather thought. His grandfather is Maulana Qasim of Nanotui. Nanota, who was the founder of Dalam Dilbin, this was his grandson. So I saw all of his grandfather in him at a very young age. So he, he was a wonderful man, inspiration, great mentor of the Ummah, I would say, for the intellectuals. And so he, he was instrumental in my intellectual development also. And then after that, I decided to go to Bihar. Patna to, to do a course on Islamic judgeship. It's an advanced level of law, Islamic laws, where you got to understand how it, how you become a judge and how you judge and the parameters of being a judge and the rules of that and so on and so on. And that's where I gained the you know ability to give fatwa there in Bihar. But no. And he was there. He was instrumental in helping me understand, you know, the broader perspective in Hanafi fiqh as to what it means to, to rule in Hanafi law. So in India, you had you had two, three states 
where you're allowed to rule according to Islamic law. Under the, the Constitution, three states have the ability to conduct personal law. One is uh, Bihar and Orissa, which is where I went at the end of my studies. So there you can take a case to the Sharia court and the uh, government will endorse their rulings as being official rulings of the court. So whatever they say will go in matters of inheritance and marriage and divorce and property distribution and all of that. And the second place is Karnataka, where I was in the beginning, in Bangalore. So Bangalore and Karnataka is the other state which allows Muslims to go to a Muslim court to decide their personal law affairs. So I ended up in both. I went in Karnataka in the beginning, I ended up in Bihar in the end. <laughs> it just happened that way, organically. I didn't plan it that way. But yeah. So that's when I came back to England, there, there's this wonderful, mashallah, philosopher, thinker, theologian, in the form of um, Khalid, Dr. Khalid Mahmoud, who was a great scholar of um, the Dilbindi tradition. He studied initially in India before the partition came back to Pakistan after the partition became a great influential speaker and a great scholar is uh, I think the most strictest sense of the word then he moved to England to do his PhD he did his PhD uh, from Birmingham University and then he started his own academy in Manchester so I, I went to him after I came back to England sat with him and I gained so much energy and insights from him. He's probably the last mentor who's still alive today for me. So yeah, he's very inspirational also. So I've been blessed with great people, uh, great uh, teachers, and, and I'm kind of humbled to be part of their legacy also. But that was that. Overall, the, the overarching, I, I think, uh, uh, Sufism, the umbrella under which I perhaps perform and operate is Sufism, overarching their very intellectual theology. As a, perhaps contrary to popular belief, okay, Sufism is not about just sitting <coughs> and making dhikr and reciting nasheed and so on, which is a very popular kind of idea that people have in their minds. It's far from it, it's very intellectual. It's very metaphysical, it's very theological. There's a lot that you need before you can read those people. You can't read Ghazali if you're not a theologian. And you definitely can't read Ibn Arabi if you don't know the language that he's writing. So so that's why these people who who kind of developed my thinking were supreme in their ability to read those people. And I think that's where... I think I gained my inspiration even today. So it's under this rubric of understanding how God acts, interacts with his creation at a very intellectual, theological level that gives us a lot of hope for better things ahead. As I said, the Sufis won't let you be negative or pessimistic. They will shut you down. So you can't do that. If you believe Allah exists, and what else do you need to be if you believe it? <laughs> So I, I thought that there's an amazing ability of lifting yourself up. 
you know, from the gutters and not feeling sorry for yourself and move on, you know. <laughs> Very positive. Yeah. So there we are. Yeah. So you completed a decade of studying or more? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was quite a decade. I wish it was. Uh, thinking back, I wish I would study a few more years, but there you go. You're kind of young and then you, you want to leave as soon as possible. So about seven, seven years with the hips, yeah. And then you came back to the UK. I came back to the England and I started looking for something else to do besides being in the Muslim. So I ended up in a translating, uh, with a translating job <coughs> in a publishing company outside of London. So I was there, I was doing some translation work. It wasn't too academic, but it was a job, basically. Then I came over here and uh, one thing led to another. I came from the West Coast, came all the way here, and people told me you have to go to Chicago before you leave. I came on a visit, basically. I came to Chicago, they said the Ramazan is around the corner, you've never had Taravi here, blah, blah, blah. They sang all these sad songs about how deprived they were. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll do Taravi somewhere here then one thing led to another I said no you can't go I said I have to go back to England my family there I said no you're not going so that that's when I stayed yeah, just uh, I think they were there because there were no scholars here except one uh, he was not very fluent with English at that time and I thought that the community did need someone although I was a bit young for that but anyway that's why I stayed can you talk about the vision behind the Al-Hassan? Yeah, so when I, you know, went through some phases, even when I was here, back and forth to England, uh, went to England, came back to Wichita, Kansas, I was the imam there for a couple of years, and then I said I needed to do something much more than this. So that's when the, the idea of Dar al was already in my mind when I had gone back to England. So Dar al was conceived there in England, and it just happened that it's been, I think, manifest here. Idea of Dharapazim was uh, from the name, the one who distributes, that we need to distribute knowledge that we have gained from the Prophet so that it becomes a universal. Uh, the universality of the Prophet's message needed to be brought out. What I saw Muslims doing, especially in the West and the East, was that they, they were contextualizing their the academic understanding of Islam to their communities. And I thought that was not the best way to represent Islam. So Islam has to be represented as a universal, global way of life, which is intellectual, which is academic, which is social, which is cultural, which is legal, which is philosophical, if you want to call it that, which has elements of Sufism in there, and elements of altruism and all that, but that needed to be, I, I think, housed. It needed to be housed in a place where you, you have people who can start the process of representation. Okay? So we have people in the world who can present Islamic ideology and theory. We don't necessarily have people who are experts in representation and then eventually representation. So that's our theory of dark classes. So we have uh, three words presentation, representation, and representation. 
representation will be in the context of where you live, according to the climate, the culture, where you don't change the content, but you um, you give it a wrapping which appeals to people who live in the context that you live in. And the representation is to perhaps uh, build another idea of how, how, how to market Islam internationally. So those are the three steps that we have, and that's the theory I, I have a kind of um, implemented here in the teachers and the students, that this Islam has to become global at an intellectual level first, and then academic level, and then community level. But it takes training. You have to develop those individuals who can do that. So that's where you have the faculty, you have faculty training, and that's where you have to impart this knowledge to the students. The students can do this, this, and that, and then all of a sudden one thing uh, led to another, and here we are, 20 years later. <laughs> so that's the, the other thing is Darqasim is that we, we have uh, the uh, idea that Islam is in two phases intellectual Islam. One is the uh, oral tradition, the other is the written tradition. So early Islam is all about the oral tradition where we didn't use books, we didn't teach with books, we didn't read or write. It was demonstrated the only time we read and wrote was for official reasons, occasions, documentation, legal documentation and so on, but for the sake of intellectual academic knowledge we didn't use books, that's the oral tradition. All of Islam, Islamic knowledge, is on the oral tradition. The written tradition came in the second century, and that was there only to document what the oral tradition had already decided, quote-unquote. So the orthodoxy was established by the oral tradition, and the written tradition continued uh, the tradition of uh, teaching and learning through the book and pen, and here we are today. So we, there's no way for us to know the oral tradition today except through the written tradition. So we need books. That's why we have books and we have a library. <laughs> All of that, right? So that's the idea uh, behind Islam, that authentic Islam is in the first three generations after the Prophet, or with the Prophet, وسلم, and that was crystallized in that time. Um, people who came afterwards, they documented all of that, uh, part of the what we call the Islamic stuff. Huh? Yeah, so the stuff with which you cook Islam today has to be there in the oral tradition. That's our approach, intellectually. And I think all the scholars here at the Al-Qasim agree with this approach. And they, they, they are, I think, very good presenters of that tradition here. So this is The other is, is that you must have outreach and you must accommodate more and more people intellectually and academically. But we, we, don't, uh, we don't distort the content of Islam. Okay? We present, represent it and then represent it as needed. But we don't distort the content. The content of Islam stays the same, whatever it was in the first three generations. That's our philosophy. Right? But uh, you, you can. Uh, we, we are very comfortable that Islam can not only match what's out there in Western academia, you can, you can actually show that it's better than what's there. Um, 
So we, we do have a chip on our shoulders, and you know, we are a bit more superior than what's on there. <laughs> but the proof's in the pudding. So we have to develop those scholars and students who can actually do that. And we're on our way, mashallah. We, we have a couple of good teachers here who can represent Islam at the academic intellectual level without uh, falling apart <laughs> and without playing second fiddle and without conceding uh, that uh, you know, there's another way of thinking. It's all about intellectual development and thought. But our inspiration, obviously, is the Prophet his knowledge, our position is that Wahi you know, contextualizes the mind, the aql, not the other way around. So Wahi develops aql. We do believe in aql, uh, understanding or rationality. It's not that we don't, we do. We use rationality all the time. But it's to defend what Wahi says. So that we, be, we, we become advocates and lawyers for what Wahi says, not the other way around. There's another way in Muslim history, which is the other way around. We say we don't believe in that one, we believe in this one. <laughs> but there you go. It's coming along. Now we have 42, maybe 45 full-time students in the morning. We have much more in the evenings and weekends. And we are coming along. We have 12 faculty members, most of them all trained. I think in the Madrasa system, there are two or three who are not trained from that system. They're trained here or they're trained in the Arab world or Turkey. But they, they, we, we want to accommodate more and more kind of different types of scholars so that we, we believe the universal understanding of Islam has to be represented in mainstream America. Our focus is mainstream America. Our focus is not the Muslim community. That's the difference. Right, so we don't go out and say that we're going to teach and reform the Muslim community, and many people are doing that. Okay, there's a dime a dozen. Our focus is, is to, to, to represent Islam in mainstream America, intellectually and academically. That's our focus. Okay, so we're not a community service organization, and we tell people we're not a community service. Uh, we tell people that we are college and we want to represent Islam. At this level, where we can entertain a discussion. Uh, so what did Kant say, and what did uh, Descartes say, or what did Hobbes say, or what did Locke say, and all of these uh, Renaissance uh, thinkers and post-enlightenment, pre-enlightenment thinkers, what is their theory, and then what is our response to that, what is our theory, and what is modern-day, uh, you know, what about how the modern-day theories are, being like Foucault and other people, what do they say, and what is our response to that? So that's where we want to be, academia, or at least intellectual. The community does need, mashallah, reform, and as I said, there are many people who are doing that. So we didn't need to reinvent the wheel. We want to do something that others are not doing. So from that point of view, we are, we are very different. So it's not a traditional, you can say, madrasa. It's more of a hybrid between a madrasa and a university. So, or we want to be a bridge between the two so that there's interaction and correspondence there. That's our ideal, anyway. Ideals, as you know, sometimes are better than the actual actions, but there you go. We're getting there slowly. We're getting a lot of response from many intellectuals in, in the world. People come from overseas and they come to visit that person. People in the country also. Academics know about us. 
uh, we, we do have a medical group who engage with the theory of, theory of medicine in Islam and they're, they're presenting papers in conferences and seminars and that's one door that we've opened up. We're going to open a few more doors inshallah. You're known as kind of a hidden gem in the West. Is there a reason you keep a low profile? Yeah, I don't like the idea of being hidden because that's the Shia philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what people say. Yeah. So, yeah. But as I, it's just about, uh, you know, I, I, I measure my exposure for a reason. I'm not, a, as I said, I'm not a community person per se. I'm, I don't want to be a, you know, a rock star or something. It's a very uh, kind of... A, uh, selective in, in where I speak and what I say and where I go and so on so I, I just think that there's a role for me here and I have to fulfill that role rather than going on with the uh, you know becoming popular popularity has never never been anything that I craved for my nature my, by nature I'm quiet and almost an introvert I am forced to give khutbah uh, only because I don't want to listen to anyone else giving a khutbah. <laughs> That's why I give khutbahs wherever I go. Unless there's other ulama there, then I'm fine. Yeah. Um, can you talk about teaching from a Sufi lens at a time when the West is kind of on a different path? Oh, yeah, that is uh, kind of separate from Dara Qasim officially, although we do meet here. Okay, that is to develop the human being, psyche, person, personality, character, all of that which is essential for, you know, what the Prophet ﷺ called Ihsan. But there's a certain amount of beauty. The beauty must be internal first, and then it is uh, externalized by you without the use of gadgets and tools. So that's where we are with Sufism. There are some obviously prescriptions that we give and there are some meditations that we do and so on. But that's just to reform the human being. As, uh, you know, trying to make people more responsible as human beings. I think it's the first step towards community reformation. The community always talk about, talk, talks about you know reform, this and that. I think mostly it's just mostly reactionary to the context of where they live. Usually, most organizations are reactionary in whatever they do, except perhaps schools. Even some schools are started because they don't want to send their kids to public school. So even that's a reaction. So I'm not too comfortable with that approach because it's a very kind of negative and pessimistic approach. I'd rather people be assertive and say, I want to start a school because I want to teach people uh, about Islam and Islam's theory of education, rather than say, I want to preserve my kids. And, uh, so there's a difference in philosophy there. Yeah? So in Sufism, you, you start with yourself and you focus on yourself and say, I want to reform. I want to see myself in the mirror of the Prophet so I'm a better person. Uh, so when everybody thinks that way, then <clears throat> social reform is secondary, because then you won't hurt anyone, and you won't uh, insult anyone, you won't rob anybody, you won't cheat anybody, and so on. So that's why I think the Sufi methodology is immensely successful in um, helping human beings understand their own responsibilities.
rather than say that you're responsible for this. So, anyway, but there's, I think, room for both approaches. This is our approach, and as I said, in, in Sufism, that's where you discuss, I think, the highest levels of theology. And that's why people come, that they want to know what is our position on these theological issues. What is good and evil? Is good and evil abstract? And is it uh, discernible by the mind or not? Or is, it, uh, is the value that is what uh, relative is absolute? And you know what is the reason <coughs> uh, behind Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's grace and mercy and all of that? So I think that's where I think uh, people want to be um, treated to a higher level of discourse than perhaps what is out there. So that might be a bit of intellectual entertainment, but it's better than the, you know, the, all the negative vibes you get from other people. <laughs> yeah. So that's where we are with the Sufism. So that, that, that definitely a component of, um, you know, what I do. But I separate it from Dharma Yeah. Can you talk a bit about how your perspective as a teacher has changed um, over time and with experience? My perspective, I think, hasn't really changed since I left. I left or came back from India. It's been basically what I knew what I needed to do. Is that was I able to be patient enough to get it done? That was the challenge. So now with life, you have ups and downs, and things happen, and they don't go the way that you were hoping they would go, and then you get hurdles, and you get obstacles and you have to navigate and negotiate life before you can do anything. But now once we, we started down classroom I don't think you have any obstacles theoretically or conceptually. We don't have any obstacles. The only obstacle we might have is financial, but that comes with time. We do need a lot of money to run the place. We want to raise a million dollars to pay for the renovations now which we borrowed actually. But uh, perspectives on, on teaching, I think that they, that they were kind of cemented by the theology I learned in the Madrasa. That, that theology has, has changed. We usually don't allow people to change their theology because that's supposed to be a-contextual. Um, you can't make theology contextual because then that's not a theology. <laughs> you can make politics contextual and uh, social justice contextual and economics contextual but theology has to be a contextual that what you believe in now is going to come with you to your grave because that's your aqida so the aqida part that perspective really hasn't changed and uh, the, some priorities may have changed according to my own situation but as I said for the past 20 years since we started nothing from that point of view has changed. It's just a question of now managing and steering the boat, navigating the, the waters. Huh? Yeah. Last question. What do you feel are the biggest challenges right now for Muslims in America, and what do you kind of hope for the next generation? The biggest challenge is to, to remain firm on their aqidah, their belief. I think when Muslims appreciate that there is tremendous intellect behind their aqidah, then I think that's when they realize, oh wow, subhanAllah, I never heard 
such a system of thinking is because Muslims don't know the intellectual value of Islam and Islamic principles that they start questioning and then unfortunately some people leave. Once they know that I don't think there's any other system that is comparable, that system of thinking. Right? So I, I think the challenge for Muslims here is to first of all learn their aqidah but from an intellectual perspective, not from a street level kind of gang fighting perspective that you're telling each other your kafirs and that's not what you need. That's the challenge I think once high school students when they're you know in sophomore and junior senior years when they're exposed to the theory of Islam, intellectual theory, there's no way they'll ever become an atheist in college or they'll never concede to be second best because their theory is, is so supreme. Intellectually, so you need an intellectual foundation. I think in the U.S. or North America, or even Britain, most Western countries, you do need an intellectual foundation to to appreciate the beauty of Islam. That's what's what's lacking. Once you have that, then I think you know, even people who pray will doubt whether their aqidah is right or wrong. Right? <laughs> you pray because you have to go Friday. If I'm, you weren't there on Friday, what happened? You know. So that's not really the, the way to, to salvage the Muslim mind. The way to salvage Muslim mind is to give them a sense of beauty and appreciation for the intellectual tradition. I mean, people who were great giants in the Muslim past, they weren't giants because they were idiots. They were giants because they were superior in their intellect. And I think Muslims must read their history, their intellectual history, and compare themselves to them and see why were they so great and why are we thinking that we're inferior? That's number one. Number two, obviously, there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, Islamophobia post 9-11. There's been there's so much damage by the media uh, and a lot of elements are against us. So, so we're, we're going counter traffic. Okay? We're going against the current and that's always a challenge. And, you know, the, the, the environment is so vicious against us that we can't really maintain any sense of piety in this part of the world, or any part of the world, even Muslim countries. Your piety level has gone down. So this, this is, I think, a challenge from the environment. But the, the, the challenge from within is the, the, the ability to hold on to something that's very precious. And until someone tells Muslims that this is very precious, a ni'mah from Allah, and it has, uh, you know, it has significant intellectual um, benefit, you know, they they need to be shown the beauty of Islam. That's why Hassan, right? That's why the approach of the Sufi is immensely invaluable. I think they 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 go out of their way to show the beauty. Uh, that Allah has created within themselves so that they can appreciate the beauty outside of them. <laughs> so yeah, it's a challenge. It definitely is a challenge and external elements, their internal elements. And, but the hope for the future is uh, Allah is there. <laughs> as long as Allah is there, there's hope, inshallah. We're not allowed to be, as I said, we're not allowed to be pessimist. Uh, he, he, the greatest hadith, I think, that uh, without doubt proves the uh, prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and I'll end with this: is that the uh, 
he said that if you see the sun rising from the west, which means Qiyam has come, so when you see the sun rising from the west and you're planting a tree, he didn't say, go home, dig your grave. What did he say? He said, continue planting the tree. You never know who's going to benefit from it. Right? So that's the level of optimism every believer needs to have. But that's based on wahi. That genius came from wahi, divine knowledge and inspiration. Muslims need to hear this, I think, more and more frequently so that they don't freak out in the face of um, antagonism, adversity, and uh, these great challenges ahead of them. Make easy. All right. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. No, thank you for coming. It was great, wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, man, so me, uh...